This morning we're in 1 Corinthians 15. Again, and this morning we're going to read through verses 29 through 34. Um, The first 11 verses was Paul basically saying, this is the gospel that I preached to you. And resurrection was a big part of that, that you believed. The church had believed it. And then verse 12 to 29, he's basically like, "How, how could you not believe this anymore? And he goes into explaining what would it mean if there was no resurrection. There'd be no hope. We would be pitied. Everything about our faith that has to do with hope beyond the grave, that, that would all be meaningless. Um, and then we looked at verses 20 through 38, the order of things, where, where he talks about that the resurrection is going to happen, that is our hope. And he mentioned that first, you know, Christ rose, and then he's going to come back, and then we're going to raise, and then that's the end of time. And so he's kind of saying this is what we have to look forward to. This is our hope. And... Um, and then he says, uh, when everything wraps up in verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. I want to read something about that verse real quick that John MacArthur um, taught on. It was pretty neat on this verse. He said, when the Son has received the redemption, when the Son has received his redeemed humanity, if you will, his bride, When all enemies are destroyed, and he is king of kings and lord of lords, sovereign of the universe, when everything is under him except God himself, he will then take the kingdom, all that the Father has given him, and he will give it back to the Father in a reciprocal act of divine love that God may be all in all. Here in a wonderful inter-Trinitarian way beyond our comprehension, the Father who ordained redemptive history to gather a bride for his son, a kingdom for his son. When the son receives that kingdom, which is a gift of the father's love, in a reciprocating act of love, the son hands the kingdom back to the father. The grandeur of this crowning event can hardly be fathomed. I thought it was pretty neat. Okay, so Paul, in the text we read today, he continues to make the argument that there's really a resurrection. And just as Christ raised, so we also will raise, and there's an eternal future awaiting us with God forever. This hope is what sustained Paul and other believers at that time. This hope was such a real part of their faith. It was what really carried them through every day. It was this hope that gave them the courage and strength to live boldly the way they did. And so Paul, when it comes to verse 29... He's just continuing to drive home this point. And I think there are three points that Paul makes in the verses we read. And this is kind of how I've summarized them. The first point I think he's making is, our faith only makes sense if there's a resurrection. Not only if Christ rose, that's that's what, you know, the case for Christ, but future resurrection. Our Our faith only makes sense if there is a future resurrection. The second point I think Paul's making is the way Christians are supposed to live, like the way Paul lived, the way the early church lived, the way we're supposed to live, the way Christians are supposed to live only makes sense if there's a resurrection. And then the third point that I think Paul is making is if there's a resurrection, we have work to do. And so the title today is The Resurrection Part 4, 
What are we doing? So let's look at this first point. This is verse 29. So I said this is the first point. Our faith only makes sense if there's a resurrection. Um, this is the first of two things Paul is going to mention that only makes sense if the resurrection is real in this point. This is the first point concerning baptism for the dead. And this is a confusing verse, and I have a lot of history with this verse because, like some of you know, when I was early in my faith, my high school years, I had a lot of friends that were in different religions. And so I spent, I was one of those weird kids who was like, learning Greek and like reading the Quran and going to the Jehovah's Witness church and the Mormon church and debating everybody and trying to figure things out. And one of the big things among the Mormons is they have a different belief about what baptism is. They believe that baptism has a regenerating work, that it's it's necessary for salvation. And not only that, they go a step further and they think that they can actually get baptized for their dead ancestors who passed away that didn't believe or that didn't get baptized and that that will help them in the afterlife to get into heaven. Um, and so that's why if you look at some of these like genealogy sites, if you look at where they're, they come from, those companies are often like located in Utah, like Mormon Norman State, you know, they're they're very into their ancestry because they want to trace back and make sure they've baptized for everybody that might not have been saved to sort of get them into heaven. And they point to this verse to say that. They look at this verse. Paul says they were baptizing for the dead. So we do that. So this is a case of this is what cults often do. They'll find a verse that is vague, that's not really explained, and then they decide to pack it full of all sorts of custom meaning for themselves. So here Paul mentions something, doesn't explain what it is. And so that's a very dangerous place to build a lot of theology out of. When you have one vague verse, that's not the verse you want to go to to say, I'm going to now build a huge set of theology around this verse, which is barely, barely mentions this thing and is not at all explained. But there are some different ways of understanding what this verse means. Often in the past, this is the main argument I've heard, which I think sort of falls short, but they say, look, Paul isn't saying we baptize for the dead. He's saying they. So the argument goes, presumably there were some in those early days that were baptizing for dead people, but Paul wasn't part of that. That's why he said they. So he excludes himself from that. So he's not supporting it. He's just saying some do this, and if they do this, that wouldn't make sense if there's no resurrection. The problem I have with that argument is I know Paul well enough from how he writes to know that if there was something going on like that that he didn't believe in, he would be addressing it and attacking it and saying, this is wrong. Because Paul spends so much time in Galatians and Ephesians saying things like, we're saved by grace alone through faith. Baptism does not save you. Baptism is like the Lord's Supper or communion in the sense of, these are things commanded of those who already believe. You believe, you, then you get baptized, and then you partake in communion. These are things that believers do. You're already in. You're already saved. These are ordinances that Jesus set up for his believers. And that's what most of Scripture says. Then you come to this one verse that seems to say something kind of strange. And so how do you handle that? So the thing with the whole they, I, I just personally, that's a fine argument if you want to think that there was this practice and Paul 
for some reason didn't decide to argue against it. Instead, he wanted to say that it's a thing. He's not part of it, but then still use it to defend resurrection. That just seems kind of off. I think um, John MacArthur gave a better interpretation of this, in my opinion. So I got this from him, and I really think it's, it's good. I think it makes the most sense of the verse. So the word for, when he says baptized for the dead, or the ESV says on behalf of the dead, and I know there's different translations, but that word for, um, in the Greek, it's huper. There's not going to be a test. But that word is just a preposition that can mean many different things. It can mean over, it can mean beyond, it can mean above, it can mean for the sake of or on behalf of, but it can also mean because of, meaning causal. There can be a cause. So instead of saying being baptized for the dead, Paul could have been saying in Greek being baptized because of the dead. Now, that's an interesting idea, and the reason is that makes sense of this verse to me and all of what Paul is saying. If you think about the many believers at this time who had already died. Others had seen their testimony. Many of them had been martyrs. Think of Stephen who had been stoned and he proclaimed, I see the heavens open up. I see the Son of God sitting by the Father. I see those things. And he dies. And others clearly saw that testimony and thought, he was willing to die for this. It must be worth following. So then, those who believed because of their testimony would have been baptized. And so Paul could be saying here, if those who died for their faith aren't going to raise, why would anybody else believe and get baptized because of them if there's no resurrection? I don't know if you can get there with me, but that's, that's what I think is the, 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 the easiest, most clear way of understanding that verse. It makes sense of all of the logic. Instead of throwing in some wrench that makes little sense in the argument, Understanding it this way, it's saying, look, there are many alive today who are believing because of others who have passed away. And if there's no resurrection, there's no point, why did they believe because of them? They still died. If that faith can't save them from death, if there's no resurrection, what's the point? So that's the way I interpret it. Again, let the Holy Spirit lead you in that, but that's my job is to say this is the way that I see it. This is the way that I interpret it. Okay, then verse 30, the next argument. And why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So Paul may have been cast into a place of wild beasts and survived, or he may have just been on his travels and gotten attacked on the way. But he's saying, look at the way I'm living my life. I'm in danger every hour. I die daily. And what's the point if this is all there is? I might as well just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. To me, this is a sobering wake-up call for Christians in the West because I think that a lot of us don't live the kind of life where we could say this, like, look at how I'm living. If, if there's no resurrection, look at, like, I'm suffering daily for the gospel. I'm going out of my way daily for the kingdom if this is not, if this is all there is, like, what's the point? Might as well just eat and drink because tomorrow we die and that's the end of it. I think that um, it's kind of a wake-up call. I think that often we live lives as if this really is all there is in the West. Even as Christians, we enjoy going to church, but often we find our satisfaction in things that bring us happiness, things that bring us comfort, 
things that bring us peace. And we often don't do things like, like sharing our faith if it's going to be difficult or if it's going to be uncomfortable. We don't want anybody to have a bad impression of us. And so we don't want to offend anybody. And so we, we and, and often kind of live our life like as if the goal of life is to really just be like, what is going to make my life work for me and what's going to make me happy and what's going to make me feel satisfied. And, um, and I'm not saying you, I'm just saying in general, this is our, this is our culture. Um, if it convicts you, it convicts you. Maybe you're not living this way, but I think that this is part of our culture to, that we have to, to reckon with, especially if we talk with other so-called believers in our lives that, you know, there are just many who, who claim to have faith, but the way they live is really like, it's, it's all just about, it's as if this is all there is. They're living their life as if this is their last chance to have happiness. This is their last chance to get all they want out of life. This is their last chance to find that satisfaction that they've been looking for, that perfect person, that perfect situation. This is all there is. And even if we say otherwise, sometimes our life you know, reflects differently. And Paul says, I die daily, which is kind of like Jesus said, you know, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And I mentioned a few weeks ago this uh, philosophical argument, Pascal's wager, which is like, you know, okay, if if you're an atheist and and God's not real, then you've won because you lived how you wanted and there's no punishment for anything. So it's great. If, you've, if you're an atheist but there is a God, you've got eternal punishment. That's like the worst case scenario. You don't want to be that guy. So then look at the Christian. If you're a Christian and it's wrong, well, then you just cease to exist and it's fine because you lived a good life. So you still win. You know, but if you are a believer and you're right, then you've totally won. That's the best case scenario. So he's like, so either way, it's better to be a Christian because even if you're wrong, you live a better life than if you were an atheist. And that's what I take argument with. And it's called Pascal's Wager. It's because I really believe that we're, as Christians, if, if being a Christian, even if it's wrong, is the best life now you could have just from a worldly perspective— that isn't Paul's version of Christianity who says, I die daily, I wrestled with wild beasts, I was persecuted. Um, we ought to live lives that the world looks at it and says, gosh, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't want to sacrifice like you. I wouldn't want to give all that you give for your, like, look, look at what your faith costs you. And then our answer is, yeah, but I've got an eternal hope waiting for me. And that's where my hope is, not in this. I don't mind giving up things now because I've got an eternity to hang out and have Full joy and eternity with the, with the Father. So obviously on the earth, though, like I don't want to be too extreme. I understand that we are subject to the way the world works as we're here. We are required to have money to pay for things. And so that requires a job and often education. And we're required to provide for other people. And all that stuff is, that's all fine. We're in the world. We're to be not of the world, but we are still in the world. And so... I don't mean we have to all quit our jobs and hit the streets full-time. Now, God could call you to do that. I knew a guy who was called to do that in California, and he just hung out in parks and preached all day and had no idea where his money was going to come from. And somehow God provided for him for a couple of years. He did that. Um, hey, God can do that. But I also think thinking in that way can, can limit how God wants to work in the world. Um, there's a great book that I love by a man named J.P. Moreland called And You Will Love your God with all your mind. And it's about the importance of the mind. But anyway, part of it goes into explaining how the reason why it's important to educate children to have strong faith is because they should go to college 
and then have their faith expressed in academia. And they should then take on jobs in different career fields and have their faith expressed in those career fields because you need Christians in biology. You need Christians in athletics. You need Christians in acting. You need Christians in science. You need Christians in the mathematics department. We need to have Christians infiltrate the world. And if we all just quit our jobs and go off into a mountain, do our own thing, we're not saving the world. So I'm not saying quit everything and only do this, but we ought to live the kind of lives where what we're called to do professionally, personally, and our families and our friends, that we're living in a way that others look at that and think they, they must clearly be living for a hope that's happening later. <laughs> There's something about their life now that they have to hope in a future resurrection. Okay, so let's look at the last part. Um, verse 33. Don't be deceived. Bad company. Actually, you know what? Let me just real quick. I didn't say this, but that whole spiel was the second point about the way we live as Christians only makes sense if it's a resurrection. That was the second point. Sorry, I didn't. The way we live, or the way we should live, only makes sense if there's a resurrection. And now we're on the third point about our faith only, no, about if there's a resurrection, we've got work to do. And so in verse 33, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Be sober-minded as you ought. Stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So if there's really a resurrection, then it does matter how we live. We want to make it to the end. We want our master to say to us, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We want to run the race as hard as we can so we can win the prize. That's like Paul said in uh, chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. So our hope of eternity means there is going to be an accounting. God does care how you live. And we want to be about the Father's business, doing what Jesus commanded us to do. So he says, bad company corrupts good morals. And so the truth is, if you surround yourself with people that are not of the faith, that will wear you down. Yes, God does call some to go out into a remote village and share the gospel, but that's also why God saves many of them quickly because you shouldn't be alone as a believer for very long in the world. We're definitely called to be in the world, sharing our faith in the world. He says, be careful. He says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so you have to understand how circles work in your life, who's in your inner circle, you know, who are those that you're feeding off of versus ministering into. And those that you're feeding off of that are investing in you should be people that are where you want to be spiritually, even if you're surrounded by others that you're ministering to and helping them come up. But if all you have around you, if all your friends and all of your influences are from the world, that will corrupt you. And so he says, be careful about that. Bad company will corrupt good morals. At the same time, Paul reminds us that we are in the world because some have no knowledge of God. He says, be sober-minded, stop sinning, some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. So he's reminding them that there are still those within our influence that don't know God, and that is on us to share God with them. So we are in the world, but we are sent. We're not to be separate from the world. We're not just to be in it, existing in it. We're 
to consider ourselves sent in the world. Jesus said in John 20, verse 21, as a father sent me, so I am sending you. So our role in the world is not to just exist as a believer and just exist into our own thing, but we're actually, and I don't like using you know buzzwords, but we are on a mission. This is a, a missionary work that we're doing. Wherever God has called us to be, whatever age we're at, God has sent you to your school. Whatever you know about God, whatever light you have, God has sent you. God has sent you to your workplace. God has sent you to your families. And so part of the sacrifice of being a Christian and part of having a hope of eternity in the future is learning how to live among the world without allowing it to corrupt us and learning how to remain sober and not sin so that we can live out an example of our faith and so that the world can look at us and have some kind of knowledge of God. There shouldn't be those in our life that have no knowledge of who God is. There should be some some way along the way that we've said something about our faith or they might ask a question or we talk about something that no one should like not know we're a believer and not know that we have God. So if we really believe in the resurrection, we believe that those that aren't Christians won't be there, right? We, we believe that those that aren't believers are not gonna be in the resurrection with us in the future and eternity in heaven. We believe they're gonna be in eternity of hell. And that really should matter to us. It's worth sacrificing for. It's worth an uncomfortable conversation. It's worth the, the long-term dedication of trying to live your life right before men so that when they look at your life, they can see grace and they can see love and they can see life and they can see faith and hope so that that becomes a testimony over time. It's worth the sacrifice. All right, so the three points were our faith only makes sense if there's a resurrection. The way we live only makes sense if there's a resurrection. And if there's a resurrection, we've got work to do.